Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. Great to have you with us. Hi, this is Tracy Slatten, hosting Independence Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to this fourth episode of the show. I am very grateful and humbled that so many people are listening to this show. Thanks for being a part of this, and I hope this show aids and encourages you on your journey. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations and the big conventional mindset. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com, independent artist thinkers, uh, blogtalkradio.com, independent artist thinkers. So in the coming weeks, we have some great guests coming on. Next week on May 21st at uh, 1 p.m., Peter Trippi, the editor-in-chief of Fine Art Connoisseur Magazine, will talk about supporting and curating the visual arts in today's competitive art environment. On May 28th, actor and producer Alexis Suarez will talk about how he's made his way as an actor and producer. On June 4th, we will welcome Tracy Gray, founder and president of Sankofa Global Project, an educational organization that supports underrepresented students by introducing and supporting them as they venture into the fields of science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. Before I get into the show, and I have a great guest, Dr. Bill Burnett, for us today, I'm offering a public service announcement, a PSA. That is, one of my very favorite artists in the whole world is in New York. It's Roberto Ferri, who's an Italian figurative painter, and he's at the Art Miami New York um, Fair on Pier 94 in New York. Roberto Ferri was born in Toronto in 1978. In 1996, he graduated from the Lysippo Art High School in Toronto. He began studying painting on his own, and after moving to Rome, 
he embarked upon an in-depth analysis of antique painting ranging from the early 16th century to the late 19th century. In particular, he began dedicating himself to the art of Caravaggio and the Academy. He's had numerous exhibitions and solo shows, and now um, he, I think he's one of the greatest living figurative painters. His work is amazing. You can see it online at robertoferri.net. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-O-F-E-R-R-I.net. And anyone who's seen the cover of my novel, Broken, has seen that gorgeous angel, and that's Roberto's work, and he gave me special permission to use that angel. So if you are in New York City, take a walk over to Pier 94 at 55th Street and the West Side Highway. Roberto's being shown by the Liquid Art System. The website for information about this show is artmiamineworkcom So that's my PSA for today, and I hope anyone who's in the area can drop by and see Roberto Ferry's work. And today... I'm delighted today to have Dr. Bill Burnett on the show talking about a subject that's very close to my heart, and that's parental alienation. Bill Burnett, MD, is a graduate of Holy Cross College, summa cum laude, and Harvard Medical School. But Harvard, you know, I went to Yale, so I have to say Harvard does not have as good a crew team or as good a football team as Yale does. But anyways, moving on. Dr. Burnett is currently a professor emeritus at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. He's board certified in general psychiatry, child psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. As an expert in forensic psychiatry, Dr. Burnett has testified about 300 times in 20 states. Dr. Burnett has written professional articles and chapters on a variety of subjects, including group and individual therapy with children and adolescents, humor and psychotherapy, forensic child psychiatry, child maltreatment, true and false allegations of abuse, satanic ritual abuse, reincarnation, child custody and visitation, parental alienation, testimony regarding behavioral genomics, and risk management. In 2007, Dr. Burnett and Judge Don R. Ash published Children of Divorce, a practical guide for parents, therapists, attorneys, and judges. Dr. Burnett edited Parental Alienation, DSM-5, and ICD-11, which was published in 2010. Dr. Burnett and his colleagues edited Parental Alienation, the Handbook for Mental Health and Legal Professionals, which was published in 2013. That's that's a big resume, and I'm really glad to have him on the show. Bill, welcome, and thanks for being on the show. Hi, Tracy. Yes, it's great having this conversation with you. Well, I'm really happy you're here. And I'd like to start out by asking a little bit about you, and when did you decide to become a doctor? Well, you know, teenagers go down certain career paths for lots of different reasons. Uh, I can tell you the idea occurred to me in high school because I was actually being influenced by by my friend at the time, my best friend, and he was going to go to medical school. He already knew that. And so he and I both went to college at the same college, and we took a course. The course was actually called pre-med, and I, I think I was really influenced by him. Uh, the, these stories are always ironic. He ended up doing something totally different. He became a professor in classical studies, you know, like so he's Greek not a and doctor. Latin. No, well, <laughs> not in medicine. <laughs> he he went down a different path, but uh-huh. I, I, I stayed in the pre-med and, and took, took that at Holy Cross College. And then when I was actually in college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in terms of medicine, but I was in college in, in some discussions with some faculty, and they sort of pushed me a little bit as to what I wanted to do eventually. 
And I, I was interested in psychiatry. It occurred to me that of all the different angles of medicine, that I was really interested in why people think the way they do, why people behave they, the way they do. Or a, a particular example is, you know, people are given the exact same information. People can be given the exact same data, but some people go one direction with it and other people go the other direction. In other words, they arrive at different conclusions. So I thought that was pretty interesting how, what you know, what causes people to think in a certain direction. And did, was there a moment, was there an inciting incident or an inciting moment when you, it kind of clicked like the light bulb going on over your head and you said, that's it, I'm going to be a psychiatrist? It did click when I was in this conversation with faculty and they pushed me a bit. They for they had their reasons. They they they, they I think they wanted me to to think a little bit more about my future, and they they kind of pushed me where I wanted to go. And of course, up until then, I, I guess I was just floating along, uh, and I, I didn't have too much in terms of specific ideas. But I think the some of my teachers at college pushed me to think about the future and to think about what I wanted to do. And I think it did click. Of course, when I was in college, I I did a lot of reading and studying and took some psychology courses and wrote term papers. I remember I wrote one term paper in college uh, having to do with Sigmund Freud, but it actually, the name of the paper was The Unconscious Before Freud. In other words, I was interested huh. in historically... Was there one? <laughs> I was interested historically in who there was in, in the past, even before Freud, who thought about the unconscious mind. So that was, was kind there? of interesting. Oh, well, you know, there were philosophers who thought about existence, you know, people like Leibniz, for instance, you know, had had ideas that suggested calculus. Yes, exactly. He, you know, they had ideas that that seemed like they were analogous to having an unconscious thinking process. So is there one particular book that you read that you said, I'm really glad I'm thinking about psychiatry. Was there one book that was very influential? There was a book in my public library in my town of Worcester, Massachusetts, which was the biography of a very famous psychiatrist whose name was Carl Menninger. And uh, actually the Menninger family consisted of physicians. I think his father was a psychiatrist or at least a physician. And then Carl and his brother, Will, were both famous psychiatrists. People may have heard of them. They had a famous clinic in Topeka, Kansas. And I read this story about the Menninger family, and that really intrigued me about the way they thought and the, the thing they were interested in. In other words, they weren't simply interested in an individual or why an individual does this or that, but they they, they were interested in society. How do mental issues affect society? And oh, that's interesting. I well, later we used met to just Dr. Hide Menninger. People. You did? Yeah, I, I, I later, uh, when I was in medical school, I arranged to spend a summer in Topeka, Kansas, which was the Menninger Clinic, and I met Dr. Menninger, and he uh, he cool. was very cordial. Then we had this weird experience later when I graduated from medical school, which is a couple. See, he he also went to Harvard Medical School, it, and it turned out that Dr. Menninger went to Harvard Medical School exactly 50 years before I did. 
So huh. he, when I was graduating, he was actually there for his 50th reunion. And so I, I caught up with him, and he wanted a tour. I gave him a tour of the campus, and I gave him a tour of the new library at Harvard Medical School. And so that was kind of neat that I had a chance to get together with him again. That, that is very cool. Well, we used to just put people away in the attic, the crazies in our culture, right? Then we had asylums, and then now it's more about mainstreaming people as much as possible. Is that kind of the evolution? Yes, that is the broad picture. The asylums were very uh, paternalistic. P- people did live live there for many, many years, and these some of these hospitals were very big, and some of them had two or three or even five or 6,000 patients in a, in a number of different buildings. And uh, obviously that, that wasn't really a, the perfect solution, but for many people uh, who had serious psychiatric problems, it was a safe place for them to live. And they obviously were taken care of almost always to their benefit, even though there weren't treatments, that, that, that these people were given a safe place to live even though there wasn't really a treatment for schizophrenia or for bipolar disorder. And fortunately, you know, nowadays there are treatments, there's medications, there's other forms of treatment. There's even occasionally certain kinds of surgery, believe it or not. In extreme cases, there's certain kinds of brain surgery that's done for very, very severe mental problems. And so we we really don't need the asylums the way we used to. So that's pretty fortunate. Well, I'd I'd love to hear more about these developments, but I think I want to get to the topic of our show. And I I feel like parental alienation is a topic that's really come under attack, but it's incredibly important, and I think it's real. So I wanted to ask you, let's start by getting, what is the definition of parental alienation? Um, And you said there was some confusion about the definition when you and I spoke. And could you elaborate on the confusion? First start with the definition and then... Tell us why there's some confusion. Parental alienation is something that almost always, when it does happen, it, it doesn't always happen when people get divorced, but it typically happens when people, when mo- a mom and a dad are having a very, very angry or high-conflict divorce. And the two parents argue about many, many things in front of the children and over the children, and the children are caught in the middle and in some cases, the child gravitates to one parent. Uh, for instance, the child takes the side of one parent and rejects the, the second parent. And by reject, I mean not just a little bit of rejection, that the child, in, in extreme cases, totally rejects the second parent. In other words, the child totally becomes allied with one parent. For instance, say the dad, the, t- the child is allied with the dad, and totally rejects the mom and refuses to see the mom or spend any time with her. And this is without without really a good reason. In other words, it's so not when because... The, mom, the mom's not like turning tricks and shooting heroin. This is a basic, th- that's average, right. good enough mom th- who's rejected. That is correct. It's done without a legitimate reason. And, and in fact, just to clarify terminology, of course, sometimes children do reject a parent because the parent has been abusive or neglectful. In other words, that they might reject a parent for a good reason. And so nowadays, people who write about this try to keep this distinction clear. So nowadays, the word estrangement 
is typically used for children who reject a parent for a good reason. You might say that there's an estranged relationship between the parent and the child. And alienation is used when the child is rejecting a parent without really a good reason. In other words, just, um, and it happens because the child is trying to get out of the middle of the fight, but it also happens because the, the one parent might might indoctrinate the child. See, one parent might say very negative things about the second parent to the child, and so by doing indoctrination or influencing the child, that that causes the child to go to that parent's side and to avoid and reject the, the second parent. So that basically, that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of of parental alienation. You know, a lot Bill? of people, when I talk about... Yes. Bill, we've got a caller. I just want to see if this is a question. Okay. Yes. Hello? Hello. Hello. Um, this is Ron Bergmaster. Yes, I do. I have a question. I was wondering, what is the single biggest obstacle to therapists, uh, the psychiatric profession, the legal profession, to um, getting them to recognize the dangers of parental alienation and legislating against it? Wow, that's a great question. And um, that's great. I, we were going to talk about that later, but Bill, you want to go for it? Well, first of all, just in when you think about an individual family, the the people who cause parental alienation frequently don't know what don't realize they're doing it. In other words, suppose it's the mother who's indoctrinating the child. Well, in many in some cases the mother realizes she's doing it and she's doing it on purpose, but in other cases the mother really doesn't even have any insight. The mother is is so angry and so negative toward the father that she doesn't, even if you try to explain it to her, she simply justifies it and says, well, of course I'm angry. The father's a horrible person, and of course the child doesn't want to go see the father because he's a horrible person. So on on a personal family level, sometimes there's extreme lack of insight that just makes it impossible to get through to that person. But I think the caller also was asking a broader question, well, what about society? Why, why can't we have laws or why can't we have rules in court about this? And in fact, I, I think to some extent we have been able to accomplish that. For instance, many states have rules about custody and you know, about guidelines for how to decide child custody. And in many states, one of the guidelines is that a parent is preferred who is going to encourage the child to have a good relationship with both parents. There's a term for that. I, I guess I forget the name of the. There's a con, for the concept. The concept is that it's it's preferential if if there's a parent who is open and encourages the child to have a good relationship with both of the parents. So that's in place in some in some states. There are actually some countries th- though that have recognized that this is a form of child abuse. In other words, to cause to impose parental alienation into a child is an abusive behavior. It's, I guess it's a form of psychological child abuse. And there actually is, there are two countries. The, the country of Brazil has passed a law saying that causing parental alienation is a form of child abuse and that courts can take that into consideration in domestic cases. And another country, actually not the country of Mexico, but some, you know, Mexico has states like the United States, and some of the states of Mexico have done the same thing. I think it would be great if 
in this country, in the United States, if we were able to move in that direction, because it is a form of, of psychological child abuse. Um, caller, does that answer your question? It does. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Bill, I was we're kind of jumping ahead in the questions I was going to ask you. I want to ask you, go back a little bit and ask how you got involved with studying parental alienation. Oh, you know, back in... Back when I was in medical school and in training, I, I have to tell you, the topic never came up. In other words, I, I took psychiatry training, and then I took child psychiatry training, and very little was said about divorce, and nothing was said about parental alienation. But I'll tell you what happened. There was a whole revolution in the 1980s where a number of people, I guess you could say, discovered parental alienation somewhat independently. Different people started to write about it. They had different names for it. They had different, somewhat different descriptions. But my own situation in the 1980s was I was doing child custody evaluations. And in child custody evaluations, a psychologist or psychiatrist interviews the children, interviews the parents, and, and makes recommendations to the court about how to arrange the custody of the child when divorce is happening and how to arrange visitation with the parents and other other details. And I remember most of these custody evaluations were very straightforward. One parent clearly seemed better or better equipped to raise the child. But and some of them were weird. Some of them odd things happened. And some of them the child uh, really rejected a parent, and there really didn't seem to be a good reason for it. Or in other cases, the mother, in, in the case I'm thinking about, clearly communicated something strange to the child. I'll tell you, I'll just give you a simple example. I was interviewing a child once, a little boy, and I always ask children, what, what, did your mom give you any reminders when you came here today? Or did your dad give you any reminders when you came here today? And this little boy said, oh, yes, my mom said, don't make your dad sound any worse than he actually is. Well, that was a, that was kind of a weird thing. That was kind of an odd thing. You know, I tried to figure out what he meant by that, and I think I, th I asked him some examples of what he what he what he meant, what he thought his mother meant. But clearly, it meant that when he came for the appointment with me, he and his mom had had a conversation about what to tell Doctor Burnett about Dad, and in fact, he, he had many many negative things to say about Dad. So that, in other words, I, I, I heard these, these little glimmers of somewhat unusual features to some of these custody evaluations. And then suddenly, um, what happened was a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist came to me one day and said that his son was not allowed to see his, his children anymore and that he had read up on it and my friend, the psychiatrist, had read up on it and they told me about a book um, that seemed really important. The name, the name of the book was Children Held Hostage, and it was one of the first books to describe parental alienation, or described in great detail brainwashing. That the, the, they used the term brainwashing and programming of children when the parents are divorced, and so that was news to me. And I guess what I'm trying to say 
is that um, you you have to kind of pay attention in life, especially you know if you're in a yeah. profession, you, you're practicing a profession, you 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 evaluate people, but you need to pay attention. You know, if something doesn't quite fit, you need to try to figure out why it's going on. And in this case, it was really uh, helpful for this friend who who had this happening in his own family to point it out to me that sometimes this happens. So that's how, that's really how I think I, I first learned about parental alienation. But of and when course, did you de- uh, when did you decide to study it? When did you decide to devote serious research time to it? Well, in the 1990s, I I had many cases in which this seemed to be happening, and I read up on it, and I, I started to write about it a little bit. But I really got involved, um, I guess, about ten years ago when the DSM was being revised. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is a big book that is published by the American Psychiatric Association. And I knew that there had been discussions of whether parental alienation should be mentioned in the DSM. And so I thought when it was being revised, I thought I would, I thought I would at least ask, is it being considered? So I wrote a letter to uh, somebody who was in charge of one of the committees, and he wrote back and he said, "No, it's not yet being discussed. But if you think it should be, send us send us a um, a proposal." And he said, "And do it in six weeks." <laughs> so <laughs> so suddenly, I was uh, in the business of writing a proposal for parental alienation to be included in the next edition of the DSM, which is called DSM five, and. I, I didn't want to do it all by myself, so I called up some friends, some people I knew who were interested in this, and we did it together. And then um, that proposal got published, but then it, it it wasn't enough. It turned out that that really wasn't enough of a proposal. And so my friends and I, uh, we wrote a whole book, a, a, a pretty big book, about why parental alienation should be in the DSM. And I edited it. But we had sixty about sixty people helped us with that book. Wow! Who wrote? I mean, you know, people wrote different paragraphs or different pages or edited or had suggestions. So it was really a big project. So well, that I, that was that was how I really got involved intensively in trying to understand parental alienation and also trying to understand why many people didn't really didn't really like the idea. So there are two yeah, sides who, to this. Who besides alienators and their attorneys rejects the notion of parental alienation? Well, that's one group. In other words, people involved with divorce really uh, take sides. And once you take a side, you really look at everything from that person's side. So you can see how uh, people in high-conflict divorces and their relatives and their attorneys and their therapists might all take one side or another. And and just in the same way that the children do. The children go to one side or the other. So that's that's one issue. The other issue is, and, and it's a serious issue, and I, I think we have to respect it, is that there is friction. I guess that's the best word I can think of. There's friction between people who are concerned about domestic violence and people who are concerned about parental alienation. And I'll tell you why how that works. Why is there friction? Yeah, why does, how does yeah. that work? Um, for instance, the, the people who are concerned about domestic violence, and typically these are women 
and and women's advocates feel that that parental alienation is just made up. In other words, that they might say, some of them might say, that uh, parental alienation isn't really the re- that what's happening. That's not the reason why the children don't want to go see dad. What they what they'll say is that children don't want to go see dad because dad abused them. Dad is abusive, or dad uh, committed domestic violence on the mother. No wonder the children don't want to go see dad. And the 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 people who are more believers in parental alienation will say, oh no, there's no domestic violence in this family. It, it, this is a normal mother and a normal dad. But uh, they fight endlessly with each other, and so parental alienation is the reason why the children don't want to go see dad. So you can you can see how uh, if both sides are extreme, one side is going to blame almost every situation on parental alienation by the mother in this case. I'm, I don't want to make it sound like it's always the mothers who are doing this. It's everybody. And the other side is going to make it sound like these problems are always due to domestic violence by the dad. And and th- there are people in an extreme position. In other, in other words, there, there are people who are strong advocates for domestic violence who say, and this seems a little unreasonable in my mind, who say that there is no such thing as parental alienation, that it doesn't really exist, that it, it was a fabrication, that the people who invented the term simply fabricated the whole idea and the only reason why it exists, why they fabricated it, is that fathers use it to get children away from protective mothers, and that these fathers are abusive, and they blame the child's rejection on the mother because of parental alienation, and they want to get their children and abuse their children even more, and that that's why this concept was invented. Now, in my mind, that, that doesn't even make any sense, because... It's kind of extreme. Uh, uh, in your, according to your experience, what percentage of that is kids trying to stay away from an abusive parent and what percentage is actual alienation well that's a good question and i don't know the answer um I, the, the, uh, child abuse is a big big problem and domestic violence is a big big problem so i i agree that there are many children who shouldn't go see an abusive parent after a divorce because of that person's history of abuse. And so I'm sure that domestic violence is a serious problem and should be considered. But so is parental alienation. And I'm not, I'm not sure of the exact numbers. I, I suppose if, if you were to count accurately, of course you have to have some method for accurately counting, mm-hmm. I, I, I would think that domestic violence is more common than parental alienation, but they both happen. In fact, when, when I'm asked, I'll tell you kind of the way I sum it up is I think that domestic violence is is really a serious problem, but that sometimes there are false allegations of domestic violence. In other words, sometimes the mother makes up allegations and then the child does also that the father was abusive when really he wasn't. And then I say the exact same thing about parental alienation, that parental alienation is a serious problem for many, many families, although I realize that sometimes there are false allegations of parental alienation meaning that perhaps the father accuses the mother of doing it when it really is not the, the correct thing to say. So, I, I, I mean, I, I end up saying both these things happen, and both these things sometimes are falsely alleged. And if the court or the say, you know, maybe there's an evaluator really has to think about all these different possibilities, 
And the judge has to think about all these possibilities. Well, let me ask you, um, let's get more specific and more formal. What are the eight criteria for diagnosing parental alienation? Yeah, let me run down these. Um, There are two main ones. In other words, in order to really say that you have, first of all, the, the basic thing is the child is avoiding one of the parents. And just for the sake of discussion, let's just say the child is avoiding the dad. Uh, The child doesn't want to go see dad and spend time with dad. And so that's the the first premise is is you have contact refusal. And then there are two things that are almost always present in an actual case of alienation. And the first one is called the campaign of denigration. The campaign of denigration means the child has a litany of complaints about the other parent, the rejected parent, or the father in this hypothetical case, and the child recites this list over and over again, that the child will come into an appointment with a mental health professional and say, "Uh, hi, doctor, good morning, say, let me tell you all the bad things that daddy did this week, and the child will recite them. In other words, the child is kind of programmed to, to want to give this list. And then the the thing that goes along with that list is that uh, ma- many of the things that the child complains about are frivolous or unproven or or flatly never happened, or they're things that that the child obviously was told about. For instance, uh, the child will say that daddy um, hurt me, daddy twisted my thumb on the way over here in the car today, and. You, you find out that you, you eventually find out you get to the bottom of it that what the child is accusing the daddy of child abuse. Actually, he and the dad were you know this little game called uh, thumb wrestling. Yeah, of course, everybody you know, thumb wrestles. And that, that's actually what he was describing that he and the dad were were thumb wrestling in the car, and the dad pushed his thumb in a certain way, and it was actually a fun game. They were both having a good time. But by the time the child got to my office, he was accusing the dad of being abusive. So that's an example, a simple example, of a frivolous uh, explanation or rationalization for the child's complaints about the, uh, the, the parent. So those, those two things you pretty much have to have in cases like this. Then there are some other criteria that come up some of the time. And some of these are real interesting. Um, This is called lack of ambivalence, and I'll tell you what that means. Normal children think about mom having both both good points and bad points. In other words, this is the way almost everybody thinks about almost everybody, that mommy is really good at at, uh, putting me to bed and cooking dinner. Mom is not so good about being on time. For instance, you know, mom has good points and bad points, and so does dad. And that's called ambivalence when you have both good feelings and negative feelings about a person. That's normal. Children who have parental alienation don't have that about their mom and their dad. They'll say that one parent is totally, totally good and the other parent is totally, totally evil. Well, that's not normal. In fact, that's not true. And that's something that these children say. And I'll give you a a real simple example of that. I had one, one child, one boy, who was talking about mom and dad. And he said, Mom... My mom is my angel. Dad is my devil. 
and no, I don't know so exactly clear. where that's so I, don't, I don't know exactly clear. where he got that metaphor from, but that was his way of thinking about mom and dad. So that's called lack of ambivalence. There's another symptom of PA, of parental alienation, called the independent thinker phenomenon. That's when the child comes in and, and voluntarily says, hey, doc, Dr. Burnett, by the way, I, I don't like dad for, for all these reasons, and, and I thought of all these things myself, and nobody told me to say this. In other words, the child goes out of his way to say that these are his own ideas. Now, I'm not criticizing children for having their, for coming up with their own ideas and for thinking on their own and for being independent. That's not what we're trying to say here. It's when the child makes a big deal out of coming up with this on his own in an unnecessary way. Here's another symptom um, of parental alienation. It's called reflexive support of the alienating parent against the target parent. And reflexive support simply means that whenever any kind of discussion or any kind of disagreement comes up, the child immediately takes the side of the parent who's doing the alienating. And sometimes you see this in family meetings. If the therapist meets with the mom and the dad and the children together, some issue will come up, some minor issue, trivial issue, and the child will immediately say, oh, mom was right. That mom, mom was right and daddy really uh, didn't do the right thing. So that's called reflexive support. Here, there are a couple more of these symptoms that occur that have been studied going. and have been documented. Um, this is absence of guilt over exploitation or mistreatment of the target parent. In other words, these children can be really, really mean. They can be very verbally abusive to the rejected parent. They call him names. They're really cruel, and it doesn't phase them. They don't feel bad about it. They don't feel guilt. Uh, I'll give you one, one more example from some people I interviewed. This boy was uh, a teenager, and so he was old enough to know what life insurance was. And and he was talking about mom and dad and about dad. And he said, hey, you know, we, we hope dad dies the sooner the better because oh. we'll get the life insurance. Oh. And that, that, that didn't, it didn't seem to bother him at all that that was a very callous attitude to have. Can, can I ask you, I know there's a couple more symptoms, but do alienators really not know how damaging what they're doing is to the child or children? And then, then the other thing I want to bring up is, um, I mentioned your work to a psychiatrist with whom I had worked in the past, and he said, um, I am well familiar with Dr. Burnett's work and with parental alienation as a common phenomenon. Children are the most vulnerable members of a family, and it is only to be expected that a parent will find them a useful tool against the other parent. In its more subtle forms, it is near impossible to detect. So can also can an alienator also, rather than going around like saying, your dad is evil, your dad is horrible, your dad did this to me, your dad. Can, um, do alienators sometimes, as tactics, use just attention? That is, by heightening their attention, when a child says or does something disparaging about the other parent, and then you know, the alienating parent just pays more focused attention. Of course, children are masters of getting focused attention. That's what they want. So can you address some of these things I brought up? Well, sure, many, many people, I mean, it's almost normal to to badmouth the other parent in an angry divorce. Not not in every divorce. Some divorces are congenial, but in an angry divorce, it, 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 this seems natural almost to badmouth the other parent. And you can do it in very, very subtle ways. Um, 
there you can be really subtle. For instance, you can say, "Honey, uh, you're going to go spend the weekend with mom, but just you know, give me a call if if, if anything happens that that you're worried about. You know, I'm here. I'll, I'll back you up. Just give me a call, or even you know, if if something if it's pretty serious, give me a call and I'll come pick you up. And then, then the more extreme, the next step beyond that is to say, "Honey, you're going to go spend the weekend with mom. If she does anything that to hurt you, call 911." In other Oof. words, I, I'm not I'm not saying she's going to do anything like that, but just if something happens that that you think you're in in any kind of danger, here call 911. And obviously, these are somewhat roundabout ways of communicating that the other parent is potentially dangerous. Now, you ask me if parents realize what they're doing. Of course, there are different levels of alienating behaviors, and there, there's different levels of insight. And there, there there are people who do this a little bit, and you point it out to them, and they immediately recognize, oh, gee, I, I really shouldn't be bad-mouthing my, my ex-spouse. I mean, I really, want, I really want my child to have a comfortable relationship with both of us. And, and so... Many people, when they realize it, they uh, they adjust what they're doing, and, and they even feel a little bit bad about about saying bad things about the other person. But what's interesting is there are some parents who who have zero insight. In other words, if it's it can take the form of a delusion. In other words, suppose a father has a delusion. Uh, by a delusion, I mean a false belief about the mother. Suppose the father has a delusion that the mother is a uh, cocaine addict and is the mother is running around with other men and the mother is abusing the child, is sexually abusing the child. I mean, this can be a delusion in which the father has these false beliefs and he communicates his concern to the child, you know, and the child, whenever the child comes back, he interrogates the child. Did mom do this? Did mom do that? Did mom touch you in a bad way? Did mom ha- talk to her boyfriend on the phone when I was when you were there? And the 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 parents who have a delusion really have no insight. In other words, th- this is a serious psychiatric condition. Now I'm not oh, saying. Can that I ask every, you a question uh, yeah. about that? Yeah. These deluded parents, these parents who are imagining and projecting things onto the other parent, do some of them stalk the? target parent, like stalk them on the internet, follow everything they do online, that kind of thing? They do. Sometimes they do. They put a lot of energy into it. For instance, if they, uh, this isn't funny, I guess I shouldn't be making it sound funny, but for instance, um, if the parent is convinced that the, uh, like in this one case, the mother was convinced that the dad was hanging out with other women, and so what the mother would do on weekends, the mother would put her children in the car with her, and she and the children would drive and park uh, either at the dad's house or perhaps at the home of the of the woman that he thinks she's he's hanging out with, and so that the the mother and the children together watch to see if they can uh. spot the the dad. So in that case, the the stalking it's a form of stalking, but also, the mother has incorporated the children into the stalking. So oh. people, I mean, there are people who really do get obsessed. I mean, that's that's the word that's used for very intensely driven, uh, alienating parents is they're obsessed with 
finding fault and damaging the other parent. Now, that's really a severe degree. Most people don't rise to that level. But when they do, it, it, it's closer. It, it can be equivalent to a delusion. And um, it, it's, it's an example of a person not having any insight into what they're doing. That's um, so. What about this? Um, you know, it's in its more subtle forms. It is more. It is almost impossible to detect. Well, um, I think that can happen, but I don't. I don't think it's usually very subtle. Um, if I, I, th- I guess what I'm thinking in practice is that if it's subtle and it's mild and it's sort of fleeting, that it might cause the child to be a little bit alienated you know there are different levels of alienation it's mild moderate and severe and and it might influence the child in a small way but the people i've known who who really cause a higher level a moderate or a severe level of alienation really are determined and it's really obvious it's really obvious what they're doing and they're happy to tell you about it that's the other thing that's interesting is that an alienating parent who is really determined is quite open about it. You know, uh, he'll. I'm thinking of a case where it was a dad. I mean, he'll say, "Well, of course I tell the children uh, what the, when I interviewed him." He, he he said, "Of course I tell the children what their mother has done. The, the, she, they deserve to know. They deserve to know all these bad things their mother. Of course I tell them." And then I say, "But don't don't. What about having them visit their mom? Shouldn't you?" Shouldn't you be encouraging the children to visit their mom? And he says, "Well, why should I do that? They're they're twelve years old. They're old enough to figure out if they want to visit. If I'm not going to tell them to go visit, they have the right. They have the right, Doctor Burnett, to go visit their mom if they want to, or to not if they don't want to. In other words, the alienating parent knew, is. You knew in that case that the mom was a good enough mom. Yes, and and because I knew that the the accusations that were being made even if they were true were trivial or 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 they weren't true in other words they were fabricated accusations uh well let me ask and, you uh, there's two we and, have and, like, but, but my point yeah yeah go ahead go ahead well, we have about well, my point was sim- minutes. yeah sorry go ahead yeah my my point my point was simply that in people who are really determined they're, they're so convinced they're right it's not subtle at all is really what i was trying to say it's very blatant well, I, I, there are two, we, there are two things I want to address. We have about thirteen minutes left, and one of those is what parents can do if they're being targeted, and especially if the children are grown. And the second thing is, like, what are the developments now? Just because um, I found you, you know, well, I found you looking at the Jung Institute website, but I also um, through researching the Parental Alienation Study Group. So I don't know which one, where you want to go first, but those are two areas I'd like to address before our time is up. Well, you mentioned uh, the the dilemma of the target parent um, in right. a really no serious tar- case. No, no target parent is a perfect parent. That's, but that's right. Many of them are good enough. Exactly. In, in fact, that's kind of the definition that. Uh, the child's rejection is way, way, way out of proportion to anything the target parent has done. In a real, in a real minor case, you know things get worked out. The judge says, "Hey, you, hey, you people, shape up, cut this out," and and people tend to shape up. 
But in a more serious case, this is a heartbreaking situation for the target parent. And he or she can't do it on their own. I mean, it is so frustrating and infuriating to have your children, you know, call you a horrible name over and over and slam doors in your face and kick you and so on. I mean, it is so frustrating. You can't, you, there's no way you can do it on your own. So, so you really need to get a coach or a helper or a therapist of some kind to, to help you get through the next two or three years. And, and what, what if you the need children to do, are older? Well, I was like just saying in the 20. beginning, in the beginning, you, you can try to avoid doing whatever you can to make it worse. By the time the kids are adults, there's some hope because occasionally children who are adults that they they wonder whatever happened to that other parent you know I, I i never wanted to see him i feel a little bit like i don't know the truth let me go and occasionally children do bounce back and they call up the person and of course if that ever happens the the rejected parent should stay calm and say oh gee it's nice to hear from you sure i'd be happy to get together for coffee uh when would be a good time in other words to not just faint. Well, what well, not, let me ask you. But, but, what is an, a but, target but, parent? What is a target parent supposed to do if, you know, a young adult child is accusing them of all kinds of things they just didn't do? And if that child has gone around telling other people, "Oh, my parent did this, my parent did that, my parent's so terrible," and has gotten to be 20 in their early 20s, none of it's true. And what is the target parent supposed to do with this massive delusion being projected against them? I would certainly defend myself with the people, with my own friends and the people who we have in common. I mean, if there are people I know who are being given this false information, I would certainly want to be able to sit down with them and say, hey, you know, you re- you really need to understand the whole story. And, and if you want to, this is my side of the story. I think there would be maybe some value in trying to reach out to the to the child, either to a, a sibling. You know, sometimes what happens is one sibling stays true to the target parent and the other one is rejecting or through a cousin or through somebody who's close to the child i i I would try to reach out to somebody and say look can can we can we try to have better communication can can we try to talk to that person and i suppose if i thought it would help at all i suppose i would write a friendly letter by hand in which i say dear johnny you know i know i know we've been through really rough times but I, I think that there, that you have you have wrong information about many things, and if you ever want to get together, let me know. So I I don't know. I I guess I'm suggesting the possibility of holding out hope, but at the same time trying to protect yourself from from false information by 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 defending yourself and telling the people that you know in common what what the correct information is. And you know, most people understand it. Most people get the picture. I mean, most people realize that that this is this is a kind of phenomenon that happens, and that people do have false beliefs about mom or dad in some situations. So you're saying that for a parent who finds themselves a target parent, they should try to get support if the children are young, get a coach, get a therapist, get someone to help. Then, as the children are a little older, that the targeted parents should try to speak up and speak the truth to mutual acquaintances and mutual friends and give their side of the story. Is that kind of the strategy? Yes, it is. And sometimes you need help to not make the situation worse in both younger children and older children. In other words, if if you mess up, the child is just going to use that as proof. In other words, if you lose your temper 
and you you slam the door in the kid's face or something. Or in other words, the kid is just going to say, "See, I told you so. You're an abusive parent. Child abuse." In other words, if if you, it is really hard. So if you're a normal uh, human being, the the alienated child is going to say, "Oh, you're horrible." Yes, and that's going to make you really frustrated and angry. And then so you have to be careful not to do something where the child can use it against you. And um, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. And in other words, it, this is a horrible condition. I mean, in terms of a mental illness, it, it, it seems like to me that it's obvious that this is a mental illness that should be in the DSM. Because sometimes it the child develops false beliefs, that go on for years, very, very serious false beliefs that involve essentially parentectomy, meaning you, you've cut off a parent out of your life, and sometimes it does persist. Occasionally it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes kids bounce back. Sometimes when they go away to college, they get away from the alienating parent, and they reach out, and they they touch base with the parent that they have not seen for years. So I know that it goes in both directions as children get older. Well, actually, since you brought up the DS, inclusion in the DSM, one of my regular listeners wrote me in because she couldn't listen in today. So she wanted, and she'll listen in on the archives, but she wrote that she's very interested in the politics around the DSM. And here's her question. I understand that there's been a lot of discussion regarding whether parental alienation will be included in the DSM-5. It seems that one of the major critiques against its inclusion is that this might lead to misuse in the court system. Could you please speak to how inclusion of parental alienation might change legal proceedings in a positive manner? Well, sure. I think it'll be less misuse because if, if it's officially recognized, if the criteria are present, if the criteria are in the book, then when people bring it up in court, people will say, well, what about the criteria? You know, is, Are you just blowing steam here, or does the child really meet the criteria that are officially recognized? I think it would cause it to be better understood, and there would be, re- there would be more research, and I, I think if it were officially recognized, it would lead to less abuse. Incidentally, we, we were almost, we were, I, I think we were 50% successful because the concept of parental alienation is in the DSM-5. And if, if you look in the book, toward the back of the book, there's a new diagnosis, brand new, and this is it. Let me say this so that you can hear it. The name, the name of the diagnosis is Child Affected by Parental Relationship Distress. I realize that sounds like a weird name for a diagnosis. Child affected by parental it's like relationship distress. They're trying to distress. say it without saying parental alienation. That's that's. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly what has happened. And so, if a kid does have PA, um, you can actually use this diagnosis or this term. They don't want to call this is a relational problem in the the part of the book for relational problems. Um, so this is a perfectly good. There's another one that can be used, which is called parent-child relational problem. And both of those are perfectly good uh, diagnoses for children who are in treatment or have have parental alienation problems. Um, so I well, hope to make it clearer. I hope eventually that it will be clearer and stated that they're, that they're consistent with parental alienation. But right now, uh, those aren't available. Well, tell us what's going on now. Tell us about the Parental Alienation Study Group. Tell us where people can find out more about 
parental alienation and maybe where they could reach you and kind of your upcoming plans? Well, you know, it's not just me, but my colleagues and I do lots and lots of education at professional meetings having to do with this topic. You know, there are all sorts of professional meetings, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, where this has come up among child psychiatrists, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. There are social work organizations. I mean, we, we, we do, not just me, but my, my friends and I do lots and lots of speaking and seminars and symposiums at these different organizations. Uh, I'm, I'm on a trip in a couple of weeks. I'm going to Zurich, Switzerland, where I'm giving a talk on this topic um, Zurich is where the famous psychiatrist uh, Carl Jung was from, and, and there's a uh, there's an I'm, institute. I'm a big fan and, of his work. <laughs> yeah, there's an institute there called the Jung Institute, and uh, I'm going to give a talk there on parental alienation. And after that, I'm going to go to Scotland and meet with a group of people in Scotland who are interested in this. So, uh, so there, there's lots. It's a worldwide problem, and there's worldwide um, groups springing up to ha- to work on the problem and to try to find. Oh, solutions. it's everywhere. Next year, we're next year we're going to go to Japan. We're going to put on a symposium in Japan, and it's not and it's by people in Japan. In other words, it's people who are there who are going to be the speakers. Uh, the people from Japan and Australia are going to be the speakers at this symposium. So we have a, this organization. If people want more information. Um, there's a website that we have called pasg.info.info. PASG stands for Parental Alienation Study Group. And that's an organization that I started a, co- a few years ago. And it's also international. We have members from more than 30 countries in this organization. And we, you know, we put on a newsletter. We, we organize, uh, symposiums at different meetings we stay in touch we we give information to each other so if, and, and there's a contact if you go to that website there's a contact form that if people want to get in touch with me uh, they can use that contact form and that comes to me uh, I, I answer the mail for the website so anyway that's p-a-s-g dot i-n-f-o if uh, people want to, want more information so people can reach you at pasg.info. There's a contact form, and the mail goes to you. That's correct. Bill, you've been amazing. I really appreciate you coming on Independent Artists and Thinkers to talk about this problem, and um, I'm behind finding solutions. So um, I hope you'll come back and talk again. I feel like we barely touched the surface, but thank you so much. You were an amazing guest and so knowledgeable and impressive, so thank you. Well, that's cool, Tracy. Thank you for your hospitality. And sure, let's talk again. Okay. So um, that was Dr. Bill Burnett talking about parental alienation and the kind of the damage and the definition and what's being done about it now. And Dr. Burnett can be reached at pasg.info, the Parental Alienation Study Group website. And I want to, I'm so grateful for everyone who listened in today. And I want to say, come back. Um, next week, we're having Pete, Peter Trippi, Editor-in-Chief of Fine Art Connoisseur Magazine, and then May 28th, actor and producer Alexis Suarez. So thank you very much for listening in, and come back next time as we talk more about the unusual journey and unconventional thinking and um, the out-of-the-box way of living and thinking. This is Tracy Slatton saying thanks again. 
This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.